Hello. Today's reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through to 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stones the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Well, thanks Celeste um, for that um, reading. Um, as I said um, last week, um, Beck spoke about the church and what it means, and and so it's I love it when a, a plan comes together and the the series line up, and that's what's happened this morning. Um, Peter um, is going to tell us more about the church from a really really famous passage actually, that uh, where we get a lot of our imagery from uh, for for what the church is. So let's jump straight into it um, because I uh, I think it's um, got a lot to say for us um, about our understanding of the church. So it, the passage begins with verse 4 um, and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he opens this section of the epistle by, by saying that Christians are like Christ because we are living stones rejected by humans, but chosen and precious to God, his special possession. And what does all of this mean? Well, let's begin by looking at Christ as the living stone. Jesus is not a monument. He's not a stone statue or idol that people bow down to. Rather, he's the living stone. He's better than that. He's better than a monument. He's the living stone. And he's living because he's the Jesus who rose from the dead. What do we know about the living stone? Well, we know firstly that people rejected him. Now, Peter gets his imagery here from Psalm 118 and elsewhere, Isaiah 26 verse 18. Um, and also he gets the imagery just from the building and construction industry that was people would have known about from, from their time. Build, builders would um, build out of stone and they would assess each stone as they um, received it. And if there was a stone that had blemishes or, 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 or was chipped the wrong way or was just the wrong size, they would reject that stone and that's how people treated Jesus they encountered him sized him out and then cast him out aside as a reject but the second thing Peter tells us uh, using this imagery that God did that is that God did the exact opposite with this stone he did the exact opposite that the human builders did God actually encountered the stone and um, and and raised him up as the most precious of all stones 
So the imagery here comes from um, Isaiah 26, verse 18, which says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. And so he's forming this argument. Jesus is so precious to God that he is the foundation, the cornerstone of the temple of God. He's not rejected by God at all. He's actually the most valuable, the strongest, the most beautiful stone. Now, the world might not see that, but that doesn't make it any less true. So as we think about the church and what Peter's saying about the church, the first thing we can say is that the most important aspect of the church is that Jesus Christ holds it all together and is integral to the church. Jesus is the cornerstone of the building. The cornerstone is the main stone around which a building is built. Um, it's, the, it's the focal point of a building, the very stone on which the building most depends for its structural integrity, at least in the ancient times. That's how it was used. And still to this day, modern buildings often have a cornerstone like this. You'll see it, especially on um, buildings built in the 19th century or, or, the, or, the, or in the early 20th century. They have this as kind of a, the beginning process of, of building a building. And this image is used throughout the Bible. So in Job 38 verse 6, God speaks from the whirlwind and asks Job about the creation of the world. And God says, who laid its cornerstone? It's an imagery that's used all across the Bible. And it's mainly used actually as a metaphor for Israel's king, who was rejected by people, but then lifted up by God. So Peter's using Psalm 118, which is a reference to King David, who was, you know, the son of Jesse and was abandoned by the other sons of Jesse, but was worthy to be appointed as a king. And he was appointed as a king. But also, um, Peter gets his cornerstone theology from Jesus himself, because Jesus used it about himself. Um, in, the, in the parable of the vineyard, um, vineyard tenants in Mark 12, I don't know if you know this parable, but it's, it's quite significant for our understanding of the church and the significance of what it means for Jesus to be the cornerstone. The parable is about a man who planted a vineyard and he was so good at his business that he, just, he thought, you know, I don't actually need to be working in the vineyard to make money out of it. What I'll do is I'll rent it out to some local farmers and he moved away to another place and they can do the work and earn the money and I'll, I'll reap the benefits. Anyway, when it came to harvest time, he sent one of his servants to the tenants to collect some of the fruit from the vineyard. But the tenants turned on the servant and beat him up and sent him away empty-handed. Then the man sent another servant to them to try again. And the tenants did the same thing. They hit him on the head and treated him terribly. Then the man sent a third servant. And that one, the tenants killed. In fact, the poor man kept sending servant after servant and they either beat them up or killed them. So finally, the man who was desperate and to, he didn't know what to do. So he, he had one person left who he could send, who was his son, who he loved deeply. The man sent his son saying, surely, surely they're going to respect him. He's my son. But when the son came to the, um, farm, the vineyard, the tenants plotted against him. They said to themselves, oh, he's, this, man's the, this is the man's heir, the owner's heir. So if we kill him, we're going to get the inheritance. So it's stupid logic, but that's what they said to themselves. And that's exactly what they did. They killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Then Jesus said to the people listening to the parable, what do you think the owner of the vineyard will do to these tenants? He will come 
and kill them and give the vineyard to others. And then Jesus continued, Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, if you haven't understood the parable, let me explain it. In Jesus' parable here, the wicked vineyard tenants were the ruling Jewish authorities, the Jewish priests of the day. The vineyard owner is God. The servants are the prophets, I guess. And then the son is Jesus himself. So when Jesus quotes this verse from Psalm 118, the stone is clearly him as Israel's true king, who will be rejected soon by the builders when they will plot and put him on the cross. But God would raise him up and make him the cornerstone and foundation of God's restored people, the new community of faith, the church. So we've got to see what great lengths God has gone to, what pain he's had to go to, and uh, the suffering that Jesus has um, endured to establish the foundations of the church. Jesus is holding it up with his life. You might worry that the church is, is losing numbers. People often say that, especially in the West and in Australia. And we want to see this turn around, but we shouldn't worry that the church will disappear altogether. Because ever since the foundation stone was laid by God, the church has continued to grow across the world so that it is now the biggest it's ever been. Peter continues and he says, in actual fact, if we come to Christ, the living stone, we become part of the house of which he is a cornerstone. So it's often the case in biblical metaphors and imagery that the imagery switches around mid-explanation. Mid, mid and initially Christ is the cornerstone of human beings with the builders. Now, Peter is saying that Christians are the stones uh, and part of the building. So the point is that Christians start off as or people, human beings, start off as inanimate stones, but become alive when they meet Jesus. You're not naturally a living stone when you're born. But when you join to Christ, you, in your conversion, in your baptism, you become a living stone and you're, you're, you're able to be part of the building. These living stones, it says in verse 5, are being built. In other words, they are being built currently by God, who puts them together. Sometimes in the church, especially in church planning circles, we can fall into the trap of thinking it's us who does the building of the church, but it's actually God who does the building of the church, not us. He builds us into a, a spiritual house, is what it says. It's spiritual because it is the spirit who does the forming and what he forms is not physical, but spiritual. This idea of the non-physical church replacing the Jerusalem temple was actually a big theme in the New Testament. Remember Jesus said, I will destroy this temple and three days later, uh, with, sorry, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. And this was a ludicrous idea from Jesus initially when people first heard it. So hilarious that people passing him by on the cross when he was dying reminded him that he'd said that and laughed at him because it sounded so crazy. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, at a time is coming when people will not worship in Jerusalem nor on this mountain, or at special places like a mountain, but he says, true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. 
The first Christian martyr, Stephen, made this point quoting Isaiah 66 in his speech before he was killed, saying, The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. So to say that the church is not a building, you've heard that cliche from Christians for a long time. It is a cliche, but it's a true cliche. Often cliches are true for a reason. It's an accurate cliche. The church is not a building and it's not. But also to say the church is the people is actually not the full picture either. A more solid definition for the, using the information we've got so far might be the church is a living house made up of Jesus worshippers with, with where God lives um, and also where Jesus is the cornerstone. Don't forget that bit because that's the most important part of the, the church. And this is significant because it means you can't break into the church and destroy it like you can into a building, into a physical building. And I guess if you're an oppressed Christian in an oppressed country, in a country where Christians are, uh, are persecuted, as many are around the world, this will be a great comfort for you. Even if the building gets burned down, that God's church cannot be destroyed. Peter goes on, though, and he says, in fact, Christians are not only the living stones that form the spiritual house with Jesus as the cornerstone, but they are the priests who serve in the church. Now, what is a priest? Peter says this is about the priesthood. And this is, this is a word that's a bit confusing because if I was to ask the average person on the street what a priest is, um, they'd probably... You know, think of um, the priests on TV. Maybe they they bit of bit of Grandchester. Maybe they think of that, or maybe I think a lot of people for a long time think of the Vicar of Dibley as their kind of iconic priest, or or maybe a bit of Rowan Atkinson in Four Weddings and Funeral. That might be their definition of priest. Or, and I'm sure that many people will have um, some quirky things to say about what a priest is. Maybe they'll say the leader of the church. Maybe they'll say offensive things. Um. And many Christians, even in our church, would say that the priest is the person who leads the church, who's allowed to lead communion and baptize people and, and marry people, perhaps. They might say that. And it is true that the Anglican Church has this word priest, uh, which is what I'm defined as, using the Anglican language. But it is using the word differently to the way the Bible use it, uses it, which is why it's a bit confusing. The Anglican Church gets its term, terminology probably from the Catholic Church, because and it's a historical reason. Um, but, but actually what Peter's talking about is a different concept here. And this, that is the concept that all Christians are priests. And actually, you need to know, the Anglican Church actually subscribes to this belief um, that it's called the priesthood of all believers. All, all believers in Jesus are priests and are given this um, privilege by God. So what is Peter talking about when he refers to all Christians as priests? He's saying that the church functions and the, the Christians in it like Israel's priests. Christians are a holy priesthood in the sense that they are consecrated or they're set apart by, by God. Like in, in a similar way to Aaron and the Levitical priests in the Old Testament were set apart. Christians are set apart in their conversion and baptism not not so much in, set apart in the sense that they've achieved some moral elitism, although they're called to holy living, which is why in the previous chapter of 1 Peter, Peter said, be holy as I am holy, quoting, talking about God. 
And he says, purify yourself. So there's an expectation that as the priesthood of all believers, that we live a holy life. The other key thing about all Christians being priests is that um, just like the priests in the Old Testament could go in the temple um, and be in the presence of God, mediating on behalf of the people between God and, and the people, now all Christians have direct access to God. They don't need um, a special priest in between them and God. And another similar way that we're like the Old Testament priests, although better, I would say, or definitely better, is that the Old Testament Jewish priests offered physical sacrifices uh, in the temple for forgiveness of sins. But all Christians who are part of the priesthood of believers, which is all, all believers in Jesus, offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Now, what is, what is a spiritual sacrifice? Paul shows us in Romans 15, 16, a little bit what it looks like. He says, um, He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul's sacrifice is here is the proclaiming of the gospel to the Gentile people. And it is acceptable to God, not because he did such a great job of it, but because he did it through Jesus Christ. In fact, whatever worship or praise a Christian does is only acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the priesthood of all believers, that is all Christians, offer spiritual sacrifices to God that are praise and thanksgiving to God and, and practical forms of loving and service towards one another. Hebrews 13 says, The fruit of lips that openly profess his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. And Paul says in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The giving of money to support ministry is a spiritual sacrifice that Paul says is a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. So Christians are priests in the sense that um, we, we offer sacrifices to God, but these sacrifices look very different we're not to the Old Testament sacrifice. We're not, there's no animal dying in these kind of sacrifice. They don't involve, involve slaughter, but praise, love, and, one's, and, and the sharing of one's possessions and the serving in the kingdom and declaring um, the good news about Jesus. We don't have to offer physical sacrifices because we have the one true high priest, um, Jesus Christ, who offered the one perfect sacrifice. There's no sacrifice worth offering because the world's sins have been paid for. It would not surprise me if you are, as I said earlier, feeling a bit strange at the moment in your faith, a bit not quite right. And the reason, one of the reasons for that is because I think we are made, if, if you're a Christian, you're made to, to, to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's what you're, that's what you're designed for. And if all we've been able to do over the last two and a half months is to listen to podcasts maybe and perhaps pray a little bit if we can and watch the occasional Facebook Live video, I can understand if that's, if that's what your faith life has been for the last two and a half months. But that's not what you're designed for. You know, that's, that's, not, that's not how to live out your true life as a, as a priest in, 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 the, um, in the spiritual church. Um, in the spiritual house. My, and my cure for your feeling flat 
is to find ways to offer spiritual sacrifices, is to find ways to perhaps serve each other, to get on the phone, to start up a conversation, to get in each other's presence physically, arrange to go for a walk with someone. Our community group's going for a walk after the service later this afternoon. You know, getting in each other's presence gives you an opportunity to actually bounce off each other and to, to show love to one another, to serve one another. Get together with some friends at church and pray. Make some meals for people who need it and bring it over to their house. Start exercising your spiritual muscles and you'll start to feel like yourself again. Um, but it's you that has to make the decision to do that in this time. It's very hard. You know, we can say it um, in the Facebook live service and encourage you. Your community group leaders might encourage you. But, you know, you need to take that step yourself and own it that you are a priest. You are a living stone. You can do it. Now, in verses 6 to 8, um, we need to understand something about the living stone, the cornerstone, which is Jesus. Peter begins about, by talking about the temple. And he quotes Isaiah 28, verse 16 again, and Psalm 118 again, and Isaiah 8. All these verses he brings together, which were popular verses quoted in the New Testament. And he says, For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So he's bringing these Bible verses together and he's making an argument. And, and the argument, I'll, I'll try and illustrate it to you with pictures. It sort of goes like this. It says, Pe- people are born... And then they live their life. And as they progress forward in time, Jesus eventually encounters them. And then there he is encountering them. And when they encounter him, they respond in two main ways. There's two options for them. First of all, the stone becomes their foundation for their life to which they can commit themselves without any concern over being let down. That's one way people can respond or the stone becomes a tripping hazard and they fall over it and because it causes them them to fall they reject Jesus essentially whatever the case may be Peter's saying is that encountering the cornerstone is inevitable and so he you know here's the option for you for your life and what and, and what's going to happen to you in your life the reason why people don't have faith and stumble over the precious stone is because they fail to believe the word. And uh, if we look back to the end of chapter 1, we'll remember that Peter has explained that the word is the gospel of Jesus Christ that was preached to them. God is in control of this whole process, says Peter. He, it's like he's forcing an encounter. He's forcing a division. And people respond, as he says, in the way that they were destined to respond. That's a big claim. But then he says, but you, he says emphatically, but you are a chosen people. And he starts using these titles taken from Isaiah and the Exodus. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And the you is collective here. It's not you as an individual, you as a people. You are a priesthood, a holy nation. To say that you're a chosen people means that you're, you're joined to Christ. To say that you're a royal priesthood 
means all the things I said before about being a priest, but also that you're royal because you're connected to the king. You know, you, you serve in the royal courts of King Jesus, in the kingdom of God. What a privilege. You are a holy nation because God has set you apart to be his people, as Israel was in the Old Testament times. So you have this special position that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Christians should get out into the world and announce to everyone the mighty works of God. We should tell everyone about what he did in creation and about the good news of what he did to save the world through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Basically, if you're a Christian, you exist with this privilege for the very purpose to be a herald of Jesus Christ. You praise God because of what he has done for you, calling you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Well, Peter finishes this section of the passage by quoting a letter, or a poem, sorry, uh, from Hosea. He says, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hosea is a book in the Old Testament about the prophet Hosea and his unfaithful wife and her children. And it's a story that reflects Israel's relationship with God. And Peter brings this story of Hosea up because he's saying, once you were outside of God's favor, once you were rejected by God, but once you were not a, a people, but now you are the accepted people of God. Now you have received God's mercy, his care and his concern. So be comforted in your suffering. Be comforted if you have been rejected by the world. Your earthly rejection is only earthly. In reality, you are the accepted living stones, the accepted ones of God. So what is the church? Don't just say it's the church of the people. That's not enough. That's, that's, that's a cliche. You can go better than that. The church has Jesus Christ as its foundation, as its cornerstone, holding it all together. It is made up of believers in Jesus who work together as a community of holy priests by God's mercy with the privilege of offering praises to him through love and service. So let's pray for our church that we would live out who we truly are.